Isaiah 20. Okay, Isaiah 20. Um, Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come now again to your word, that you would bless our time, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would bring change, that as we evermore gaze upon your glory, we might reflect it. Lord, have your way amongst us tonight, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 20. Um, I know some weeks as we've gone through Isaiah, we've occasionally hit sections that have been complex and we've taken our time and a, and a few different weeks. We've uh, uh, taken a little while longer perhaps than normal. This week we have a short passage and I imagine it'll be a slightly shorter sermon as a result. I did look to see if we could combine this chapter with the one previously um, and I felt there was too much going on in the previous sections to add this in um, and it's not going to fit in with next week so um, we may have a slightly shorter one tonight but let's look through it and, uh, and uh, then we'll go through it as we always do. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon the king of Assyria came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then Yahweh said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? And so as we come to this passage, it's one of those ones that if you don't know the background and you don't know what's going on, it can initially appear very confusing. So... Um, Let's have a look at a few things we do know, and then I'll give you a brief history lesson so you know what's going on, and then I think it'll make a lot more sense, okay? Um, here we have various places mentioned. We're familiar with the coming superpower of Assyria of that day that's been such a central issue and the, and the main immediate problem for Judah um, at that time. Ashdod, we've come across because we spoke when we dealt with the uh, Philistines, 
we dealt with the five cities that came together to make the nation, and one of those was Ashdod, and that is a Philistine city. And then we have uh, the Egyptians mentioned and the Cushites. And Egypt, Egypt was the subject of chapter 19, um, the Egyptian uh, nation being so significant in Israel's history. And in chapter 18, we spoke, uh, although we were still dealing with the judgment against Damascus, we did speak about the land of Cush, which is the modern day area of Ethiopia. Ethiopians. So the Cushites are Ethiopians. Um, so that's what we do know immediately from the text. Um, here's a little bit of background as to how these nations coincide. Some of this we have dealt with already, but you're probably overdue a reminder. Um, so here we are. Ethiopia had been ruled by Egypt for hundreds of years. E- Ethiopia, the smaller nation, Egypt, the bigger and greater nation. And they have been ruled for them for 100 years. Then in 725 BC, relatively recent history at this point, there was an Ethiopian king who uh, gained control over most of Egypt. The smaller nation took over most of the larger nation. Then a, a few decades on, in 708 BC, there was a, his successor then defeated the Egyptian king and created a united country. And so there was this country of uh, modern-day Egypt and Ethiopia and borders beyond those countries even, that all of them uh, together had one united country under Ethiopian rule. Now, this new big country figured, well, we're pretty strong. The Ethiopians have taken over the Egyptians and now they're doubly big and it seems to be settled in this one great nation. Um, You know, who is this Assyria that everybody's so concerned about? Maybe we could take Assyria on. We're with the big boys now. We're kind of tough. We've shown how strong we are. And so they began to rebel against Assyria. They began to rebel against Assyria. And... um, the Philistines were encouraged to be part of that coalition. And again, the, the, those in Judah perhaps would have been tempted geographically as they stood between the south, Egypt and Ethiopia, and uh, Assyria to the uh, north-east. Uh, um, they would be tempted to join in this rebellion as well. Now, with regards to the previous chapters, let me just say this. This is not the fulfillment of what was going on in chapter 19. Chapter 19, we saw last time again and again, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. End time prophecy. But for, um, for Isaiah so often, what is going to happen at the end, there is something similar that happens nearby. A nation is going to be judged at the end, and that nation's going to have a judgment in the, in the nearer future. We see that um, with, uh, we've seen that with the Moabites, we've seen that with the Philistines, we've seen that with Syria, with Assyria. And so um, this is a reoccurring theme for Isaiah. So with all of that in mind, hopefully we can make a bit more sense of this. 
in the year that the commander-in-chief, old versions here say Tartan, um, the King James says Tartan, Tartan if you're Scottish means something completely different, but um, uh, Tartan wasn't a name, I think in the older versions it, was tr- it wasn't translated, it was left as if it was a name, but we understand that, the, that Tartan is a, was a word that meant commander-in-chief, and uh, as such, it has been translated, I think, in most modern versions. And the commander-in-chief wasn't in charge, obviously was told what to do by the king, but they pretty much had autonomy over the army. They could do almost as they liked. And so the commander-in-chief is sent by Sargon, who, in told, is the king of Assyria. And the commander-in-chief has been sent down there. And then once he's down there, he will have a lot of autonomy as to what to do. And he comes to Ashdod, and he fought against it and captured it. Now, Ashdod is this Philistine city. It has been uh, commandeered, as it were. It has been brought into this potential coalition. Um, And uh, they were under Assyrian rule, and they feel a bit buoyed by the Egyptian and Ethiopian uh, support, and so they rebelled against Assyria. And that rebellion was then quashed by Sargon. Sargon comes and he quashes their rebellion. So they rebel against Assyria. Initially, Ashdod's taken, and they rebel against that, and then there is this quashing of the rebellion that Sargon is sent down to do. And so Ashdod represents those that Egypt and Ethiopia would draw in to be part of the war against Assyria. And Ashdod has been fought against and captured again by Assyria. Okay? Now, all of that in verse 1 is to give us a a chronological snapshot. This is the time. Lots of times in Isaiah we're we're wondering when was this said and who was it said to and what have you. Here we're given a specific date that in this year, which we know to be with with fair degree of accuracy, 711 BC. And so this is the time that is being spoken of at the time of the capturing of Ashdod. At that time, verse 2, Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos. We have the repetition then of who he is and his, uh, his, him as God's prophet and his being the son of Amos. It was a reminder back to 1.1. And this is what he's told to do. Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist. Take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Okay, let's deal with it. It's not every day you go through scripture and you come across bare buttocks, as is expressed in a few verses. So let's have a look. Um, Commentators wildly disagree on this point. There is a split. There is a split amongst commentators. And the sackcloth, which was traditionally worn, as many of you know, at times of mourning and, and loss... That Isaiah, as a prophet, may well have worn that over time. The sackcloth was an outer garment, and Isaiah taking off his sackcloth, if taking off that alone, would not have been completely naked. The word here translated naked, in some other versions, simply says stripped, which is deliberately evasive, and I think is probably a preferable translation. Um, The word can sometimes refer to someone being literally, completely, 100% naked. 
At other times, the word is used to mean stripped down, but not to be completely naked. And um, really, the commentators seem to split into two categories here. Those who think he was naked and those who think he was wearing his, what we would call underwear still, a loincloth. Uh, and when you think you have loincloths, that would allow for your bare buttocks a few verses further on. You're thinking Tarzan in the jungle, perhaps that's probably along the lines that you're, 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 you're on the, you're the, right, the right train of thought, as it were. Um, so the question is, is, did God command Isaiah to be completely naked? Now, the commentators who will argue, no, that did not happen, have very little to argue from the text and from the context. They simply... Was their argument predominantly is God wouldn't do that. Well, if we were to say God wouldn't do things whenever we think he wouldn't do them, there'd be all sorts of things in the Bible we might, we might not have that are clearly taught. Um, on the other hand, those who say that he was naked um, don't seem to give any credence to how shameful that would have been. And also to the practicalities. If Isaiah was to walk around naked for a day, it would cause quite a hoo-ha, to say the least. For him to walk around naked for three years, I don't suspect he would be allowed to do so. Some have argued that, you know, as a prophet, they might have had special privileges and what have you. They might have got away with stuff that others wouldn't have gotten away with. And all in all, um, I've wrestled with this and I've come to the conclusion as I often do as a pastor, more so actually as I get older, that firstly, I don't know, and secondly, I don't care. I mean, sometimes you come to the first conclusion and it's, it's a struggle. Sometimes when it's, you need to get to the second one as well. It doesn't really matter. I think what does matter is that we have a bare buttocks. We have some bare buttocks in play because that's going to be the parallel that will lead us to the Egyptians who, by the way, at that point, and we'll probably deal with that in a few verses' time, probably almost certainly were fully naked, but we'll, we'll discuss that in a moment. So, you know, if you think that God is okay for prophets to wander around Israel and not be in sin, walking around three years completely uh, stark naked, then um, that's fine. You, you can have that, and if other people think that God wouldn't do that, then we'll have Isaiah in a loincloth. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm not that bothered because I don't want it to detract from what actually is going on here. The other thing is that he's walking barefoot. So um, his uh, feet would have, would have developed a few calluses, one thinks, after three years of walking barefoot. But there we are. He is walking barefoot, and he is walking um, with certainly very little on, and perhaps nothing. And that is what God would have him do. And verse 3 is the, the real kicker. And then Yahweh said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years. That's a long time. Think where you were three years ago. Three years ago, I just started as pastor of this church. I was in my first year still. In fact, three years ago, gosh, yes. I think I saw it this morning. Three years ago to this day, to this day, we got our visa to work here from the embassy in London. Three years ago to the day. There you go. That's funny, thinking about that. It's a long time ago. Seems like a distant history to me. And yet, Isaiah spent the entirety of that time becoming that strange guy walking around either naked or in a loincloth. That guy walking around barefoot. 
And, of course, Isaiah was known before that. Isaiah had prophesied before that. Isaiah was a public figure before that. As I told you when we did the introduction to Isaiah way, 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 way back in chapter 1, Isaiah may well have been of uh, royal privilege, hence his his access to Ahaz in uh, chapter uh, 7 and uh, to Hezekiah later on. And and so Isaiah was a well-known figure. Now, you imagine a well-known figure today saying, from now on, I'm simply going to walk around in some kind of thong, and that's it. It would kind of be newsworthy, wouldn't it? That everybody would see and everybody would know. And I think that's the point in all of this. The point in all of this, well, other than the point of who'd want to be a prophet... The point in this is that that's a long period of time and it's something that people would have seen and thought, this is really, really strange. And then what happens is that God says, just as he's done this for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So the reason for him to do this for three years is a sign against the Egyptian uh, Cushite Ethiopian uh, country, now united country. And it's a, it's a sign against them. And just as he's done that, naked and barefoot, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. In other words, these two nations who think they're so big and mighty are going to be humiliated. You see, the whole point is whether you have Isaiah in a, in a, in a minimalistic loincloth or whether you have him in, uh, naked, Isaiah is shamed. Here is a man who is going to be ridiculed and mocked. His situation is one that is shameful, whichever position you take on his clothing or lack thereof. He he is in a shameful position. He walks around this way for years. He probably becomes a laughingstock. People point at him. What's this this all about? And then after three years of it, God says, "This, this is a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia, and it's a sign against them because they are going to be like this. What you've seen and what you've witnessed for three years, what you've laughed at and mocked, what you've seen is shameful, what you've covered your children's eyes from, what has been in front of you for three years, this will be what happens to Egypt and Ethiopia. And what is interesting to me is that... um, We know that the time that Sargon takes down Ashdod is uh, 711 AD. 711 AD. Uh, Sorry, AD. BC. And Egypt and Ethiopia become a united nation together three years after that. And so here's Assyria... Kind of Egypt and, and Ethiopia are kind of, uh, you know, most of Egypt initially is under the rule of Ethiopia, and they kind of get the Philistines involved, and then the, there is actually an interesting story whereby the leader of Ashdod flees to the mightier nations that it was helping Egypt and Ethiopia. It flee, he flees to them for help, 
What do you think they do? Realising that they're not, things aren't going to work out for them, they hand him over to the Assyrians as a peace offering. You see, the Philistines, a smaller nation, they had trusted in Egypt and Ethiopia to fight against the superpower of Assyria. The same nation that Ahaz had been wanting to trust in. And this whole time, Isaiah's been walking around naked, and everyone's like, what's going on? What's this all about? And it's a sign that these great nations that have been, that the Philistines have been let down by, you'll be let down by them too. That not only are they not able to help the Philistines, not only are they not able to help you, they're not going to be able to help themselves. You see, this whole section from chapter uh, 13 right the way through to here has been all about this great nation, God's going to bring them down. This great nation, God's going to bring them down. This great nation, God's going to bring them down. And in a couple of cases, this great nation, God's going to bring them down and then lift them up. And God has shown himself to be sovereign over the nations. And the lesson that Israel is supposed to be learning, the one that was there at the beginning, the one that's here at the end of this section, the one that is central to the whole of the last however many chapters, is simply this. Israel, don't trust in the other nations. Trust in Yahweh. Now there is a fascinating um, bit of writing from Assyria. Assyria kept records and Assyria kept writings. We don't tend to have Assyrian books on our bookshelves uh, like we might have Jewish books or Hebrew books because the, the Jewish history is our history of faith to some degree. Um, but there, there's a fascinating uh, writing from Assyrian history where following this conquest, Sargon, the king of Assyria, basically says, we went to, uh, we went to Ashdod, and conquered, and their people became our people, and their belongings became our belongings, and we took their gods. This thing I keep saying to you that was part of their mentality of the nations at that time is that you conquer a nation, you conquer their gods. They saw this as, as being... Um, something that happened in warfare. There's the physical realm and there's the spiritual realm side by side. And I think they're closer to the truth than we are in that regard. And so when Israel decides, or Judah here specifically in this case, when Judah decides, you know what, we're going to place our trust in the Assyrians, that is idolatry. Because they're trusting in Assyria and Assyrian gods rather than trusting in Yahweh. And one of the things I really want us to get at this point in our journey, because we're going to come back to Babylon and some others that we've already dealt with in chapter 21. And I think that chapter 20, is, which is a, a definitive break stylistically from what we've been doing, it, it's put here as a sort of breathing spot for us to say again, who are you going to trust in? And I think that we, as the congregation, should at this point do the same thing that we should understand that there are certain things in this world that we could place our trust in. And we might say, well, you know, there's no implication. We we, we trust in God, but, you know, we want to trust in this as well and that as well. I think we need to be very careful because there are so many things in this world that we place our trust in that is essentially because we don't trust God. 
That isn't to say that God doesn't providentially work through things. It's not to suggest for, for a split second that if you're sick, you shouldn't see a doctor or something like that, and we should only trust God and what have you. But it is to say that I think as, a, as people today, we are far too, far too integrated with the thinking of the world, and we place our trust in the things that people who have no God place their trust in, rather than trusting in Yahweh. It's scary to trust in God. Because what happens if he doesn't come through? What happens if the Assyrians are on the brink of the city and they do take the city? What happens? And so there is fear. And when there is fear, there's a temptation to trust something other than God. We must fight that with all of our hearts. I think the fact that Isaiah did this for three years is highly significant. Three years is the period of time from Ashdod falling to Ethiopia and Egypt being united into this one nation. This is the point where they're going to want to go and get the Assyrians. This is the point where they're now at maximum strength. And Isaiah is basically saying, remember what happened to the Philistines? These people are going to fall. They're going to be taken away in shame. They're going to be taken away as captives. They're going to be taken away exposed in all sorts of ways. And uh, you don't want to be part of that. And so those three years are a constant reminder. And then when the explanation is given, I think that the the warning becomes very, very clear. Sometimes God says something in his word. And if it's in his word, we want to pay attention to it, right? But sometimes God says something in his word again and again and again and again and again. If Isaiah had been naked and barefoot one day, as one commentator suggested, <laughs> naked and barefoot for one day and everybody remembered it for three years, then that wouldn't be much of an emphasis. But because he walked around naked and barefoot for three years continually, it's just drilled into the heads of the people. There's this lovely part of Second Peter, we'll be there after we finish First Peter, the lovely part in Second Peter where Peter basically says, it's no problem to me just to keep repeating to you things that you already know. Because I'm going to be gone at some point and you need to know it. I hope that in my ministry of the word, I repeat things to this, with the same frequency that scripture does. I don't want to say things because it's my favorite topic or it's something that I'm really interested in. There are certain churches um, that are supposedly expository, supposedly teach through the Bible verse by verse, that seem to want to talk about eschatology every single week because it's the pastor's favorite topic. Oh, refrain from naming them but there are several I'm aware of and I think there's a danger in that when the Bible says something again and again and again and again and again it's important that we see it again and again and again and again it was such a significant thing that Judah did not fall into a coalition with Egypt and Ethiopia why because when the Assyrians conquered Judah geographically is the closest 
and will be affected the greatest. God had his plans and they weren't part, that wasn't part of his plan at that time. Assyria, as you'll recall from our previous messages, got to the very brink of Jerusalem and God miraculously gave them victory over a huge army and they never quite conquered Judah as they had Israel. It wasn't God's plan. For us as believers, there are some things in Scripture that are emphasized again and again and again and again and again and again. And we need to get hold of those things. Please, church, let us not be a kind of church who we are going to have fights over doctrines that are mentioned once or twice. There are a few passages in Scripture that affect certain doctrines that people seem to want to wrestle over and fight over and sometimes divide over. We should have no part in that. But equally, there are some churches that are so keen to keep the peace that there are doctrines that the Bible heavily emphasizes that they just don't want to have to deal with. That is not our model. Neither one of those is. We need to emphasize what the scriptures emphasize, major on the major and minor on the minors. And the major here, as we go through Isaiah, is trust Yahweh, trust Yahweh, trust Yahweh, trust Yahweh. And I'm very excited that as we hit the beginning of January, and when First Peter chapter 3, that Peter is going to tell us absolutely, you know, explicitly, that the Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is Yahweh and we should place our trust in him. We need to place our trust in Christ. Faith is not having a, believing in something one day when a music's playing in a minor key and we go forward at an altar call. It isn't being emotionally moved. It isn't giving intellectual assent. Faith is saying, I trust in you. And our lives being an expression of that trust. Of course we're going to mess up. Of course we're going to fail. Of course our faith is, is a journey of growth. Just like with Abraham. God says, go to a land I will show you and leave your family behind. So Abraham went to the land and took some of that family with him. And compromises and compromises and compromises and God takes him on that faith journey until he becomes a man of astonishing faith. But nonetheless, we're on journeys of faith. And for us, we need to learn to trust Christ with everything. With our jobs, with our families, with our children, with our hopes, with our dreams with the things that are taken away from us, the things put upon us that we don't want, that we need to trust Christ in everything. It's so easy to say it, it's so easy to understand it, but it's often so hard to do it. And what do we do when we don't trust God? Kind of like we spoke about this morning. There's that temptation to manipulate situations and circumstances, to make things happen, to take control of a situation. It's so hard for us in the midst of our pride to simply get down on our knees and say, God, if you are going to do this, nothing on heaven and earth can stop it. And if you're not going to do it, then there's nothing I can do to make it happen. I trust you. I trust the outcome. You are sovereign. You are good. And in, my, in your hands, I place my life. Our pride will resist such a thing. And we must fight it to the bitter end. And so three years of nakedness and barefoot is a constant, strong, 
definitive statement that means that when the time comes for the revealing of the picture of the lesson being taught, that there was no chance of them not doing what they've been told to do. Verse 5, Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. In other words, those who have trusted will be ashamed because the ones that they put their trust in have been ashamed with them. They've been shamed, and so those who trusted in them will be shamed as well. Verse 6, And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, The coastland, if you recall from, I think, chapter 14, is where the Philistines were. The Philistine cities were on the coastland. They were the people of the coast. And so it is Ashdod that were defeated in the year that Isaiah started this journey. It is them who are being referred to here. They will say in that day, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? The Philistines, they had their hope. That word is used twice in this section. Verse 5, Cush their hope, those in whom we hoped. It's an issue of trust. That's what has happened to those they placed their trust in. They're the ones they fled to. That's probably a reference, as I said earlier, to the leader of Ashdod fleeing to the Egyptians and Ethiopians and being handed over. And the question is, if that happens to them, how shall we escape? Really, this last verse is a verse that Judah should be saying. And yet the words are put into the words of the Philistines, those on the coast. Can you see the rhetoric effect of that? The ones who got let down three years ago at the beginning of Isaiah's nakedness, those ones are saying, we trusted in them, our hope was in them, and now they've been ashamed, we're ashamed, what are we going to do? How are we going to escape if this happens to them? And Judah's supposed to be thinking, that's us. What happened to the Philistines is what will happen to us if we place our trust. And so the question to Judah then, as it is always to us, is to whom do we place our trust? And again, I'm not going to flog the dead horse any further. I'll keep it brief tonight as the chapter is brief, give you a little break. But um, I do hope that the lesson stays clear in our heads. I, I... would like us to prayerfully consider the type of things that we place our trust in rather than God. Sometimes it's our own strength, our own might, our own abilities, our own giftings, our own intellect, our own capabilities. God is so quick to just tear us down. I remember a time when I was able to study and study and study and study and I just felt like I could never stop learning and then God took away my ability to be able to read and concentrate and study. Something I'd never have wanted. What was the result? Decent sermons. (laughs) I mean, it's not that they were lousy before, hopefully, but when you 
are able to read less than you could, you've got to make sure that you focus on what really matters. You get the right thing. You wrestle with the right issues. And it, nonetheless, there's been week after week where I've come to teach and I'm, Lord, I don't understand it. I wanted to finish reading that book. I wanted to read a few more commentaries here. I wanted to understand this issue better. And again and again, God just supernaturally enables me. And, and I sometimes hear preaching sermons and I'm like, man, that's good. Where did that come from? Because my bit of paper doesn't look anything half as good as this. Thoughts that were jumbled become clear. And for me, the lesson has been that God is sufficient in the midst of my weakness. He is my strength in my time of weakness. And folks, let me be really frank with you. You only get to learn that lesson one way. By having your strength taken away and being made weak. It's the only way we learn. The Apostle Paul had his thorn in the flesh. We'll get away from that sticky issue, the specifics of it right now. But nonetheless, he was put in a situation where he begged God for mercy and for relief. And none was given. And why was none given? So that he would learn to trust in God. If we only trust in God when we have no hope and when we have strength and might and capabilities, we don't trust in him, you know what he's going to do. He's going to take away the things that you're trusting in. He's going to take away your strength. He's going to take away your giftings. He's going to take change your circumstances. So you can't trust in those things. So my advice to you is, don't trust in the things you have. Trust in the God who gave them to you. Use them for his glory. Use your money for his glory. Use your time for his glory. Use your giftings, your strength, your intellect, your might. Use everything you have for his glory. But don't trust in them. Get on your knees and say, in you alone I trust. In you alone I have hope. In you alone I have strength. And apart from you, I can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this very visual reminder. Those who trust in other things will be let down. Those who trust in you will never be let down. May we not trust in the gifts that you've given, but may we use them for your glory. But may our trust be solely in you. May we learn what it means to trust in you, to trust in Christ and not to trust in our own might or our own strength or our own wisdom. And may we bow before your word when we love it, when we struggle with it, when it contradicts our thinking. May we bow before your word that we might express our trust to you in that way. Amen.